Michael Hainsworth. 87% of Canadians would prefer to receive end-of-life care at home, but two out of three of us will die in a hospital. As a result, Canada spends more on end-of-life medical care than its G7 peers. Shifting from acute care to palliative care in the home would save hundreds of millions of dollars a year and give us the end-of-life we prefer. Doctors Kieran Quinn, a clinician scientist at Sinai Health System and an assistant professor at the Temerity Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and James Downer, the head of palliative care in the Department of Medicine at the University of Ottawa, tackled these issues in a new CD Howe report titled Canada's Sky High Costs for End-of-Life Care Need Solutions. We sat down to discuss what those solutions are, but began by asking the question, if most of us want to die at home, why don't we? It's a great question, Michael. I think there are many different factors as to why our patients are not receiving care uh, that's concordant or aligned with their wishes. Uh, our report really tries to uh, highlight some of the structural inefficiencies that leads to that. What does that mean? It means that things that we do that nobody wants done but doesn't need to be done. And I think we're trying to highlight in our report some of these inefficiencies that are low-hanging fruit to fix in order to address some of those disparities that you pointed out in location of death. You know, many people would really prefer not to die in hospital. Uh, I think some people may not always fully appreciate uh, the complexities involved in dying at home. And so uh, the number who will say that they want to die at home, it might not actually be quite that high when it comes down to those final days and weeks. Uh, however, what is clear is is that probably one of the major drivers here is that just from a from a structural uh, from a structural standpoint within the healthcare system in Canada, there are just so many things that uh, that, that um, shunt people towards acute care and promote um, a death in hospital and make a death outside of hospital very challenging. And that's what we were really trying to highlight in this report, um, that these are really uh, very expensive uh, problems. They cause a lot of, uh, they, they lead to a lot of very high costs uh, across the system, a lot of inefficiencies across the system. And we're doing this to nobody's benefit. Nobody wants this. Um, and uh, that with a few simple changes, we could save probably hundreds of millions of dollars a year and also be giving people uh, better deaths. How do we compare, though, against other countries when it comes to that end-of-life care and that desire to die at home versus, to your point, the complexity involved in actually doing so? We don't do very well at all. Um, where our performance is... is is probably at the bottom end of all of uh, the wealthier nations of the world. So we spend more probably than any other wealthy nation on end-of-life care, but we spend it uh, inefficiently in acute care on uh, you know getting people into hospital and having people receive their end-of-life care in a hospital. But we don't necessarily give them more uh, aggressive treatments. We don't. It's not that Canadians want more chemotherapy, so we're not getting more chemotherapy. We're not getting more. Uh, more types of cancer care or other sort of disease-related treatments uh, than other nations. We just use the hospital essentially as a hotel um, uh, rather than have, because we simply just don't have other options available to patients in the system. So if we try to compare apples to apples instead of apples to oranges, right, we're talking about high-income nations. Canada is among the most wealthy nations in the world. And if we look at nations like the United States, our neighbors to the south, where they have private uh, health care, England, however, has a very similar uh, healthcare system to Canada and the Netherlands um, with sort of a mixed healthcare system as far as reimbursement and payment. 
we, let's look at the numbers where people die in those countries, right? So in Canada, you know, 60-ish percent of Canadians are dying in hospital. In England, that's about 45 to 50 percent. And in the Netherlands, about 30 percent. And in the United States, about 20 percent. So just as one metric as far as quality of end-of-life care, we're at the bottom end of it. Let's define some terms here. Palliative care versus acute care in those final three to four months of life. So palliative care and acute care are not incompatible with each other, right? And so um, when we talk about palliative care, it's a, it's a philosophy of care, it's a type of care that is focused on quality of life and comfort rather more than disease, uh, sort of than life prolongation uh, at, at any stage of illness. So you can be providing palliative care uh, very early on in a disease course, even when there are curative options on the table and being provided. Um, when we talk about acute care, we're, we're referring more specifically to care provided in a hospital in a, an acute care setting uh, that's very much focused on reversing acute processes, pneumonia, dehydration, you know, uh, these types of things, um, uh, rather more than necessarily a comfort-oriented quality of life uh, type setting. They're not entirely mutually exclusive, but in this context, when we're talking about acute care, we're talking about people being uh, admitted to hospital uh, near the end of life, but not necessarily getting care focused on palliation. Uh, and rather than getting uh, admitted uh, to facilities that are focused on palliative care or perhaps staying in the home to receive palliative care. So then let's review those four structural problems in Canada's healthcare system that exacerbates the situation, starting with inadequate end-of-life beds and options. What does this mean? If you look to our neighbors to the south in the United States, they have a very large um, industry almost. It's an economy in and of itself of hospice care, right? So there are organizations that are set up in homes and beds and places where people can receive their end-of-life care that are outside of the acute care setting like a hospital. In Ontario, as a representative example of Canada, less than 10% of our funded beds for patients across the entire province are either a hospice bed or a dedicated palliative care bed, which sometimes can occur in a sort of a specialized hospital setting. Um, furthermore, the funding for those hospice beds, especially in, in Ontario, is not fully funded by the government. So there, these organizations are left to raise at least half often or more of their operating budget through donations and other means. So we just have an inadequate number of beds to look after the needs of people, which can be very high near the end of life, outside of a hospital or acute care setting. I think it's important to recognize the use of the United States is a very important example for us because in addition, I mean, the United States obviously has, I think, a well-deserved reputation for very high cost healthcare and a lot of inefficiencies. Um, but end of life care is one place where they kind of got it right. Um, and the hospice benefit, the Medicare hospice benefit that exists uh, throughout the U.S. system has really been a game changer for them. So you have uh, a situation where in the early 90s, uh, the United States, their, their rates of in-hospital in death were actually higher than ours in Canada right now. They were in the 70s. And in sort of a generation, they've come down from the 70% range to the 20% range solely through very simple uh, intervention, uh, this Medicare hospice benefit, obviously, uh, it, you know, this creation of this industry, this hospice industry, but, but really what it amounts to is creating capacity and creating options for people uh, other than the hospital um, to receive their end of life care. And, and uh, this has been, you know, one of the major drivers in improving uh, end of life care for them. I wonder to what degree this is also a cultural issue within the healthcare system. You cite the siloing of budgets 
uh, as a, a, an issue that needs to be addressed because it's hampering these cost savings. Any organization that gets big enough develops these types of cultural silos that prevent cross-coordination. This really picks up on Kieran's point about uh, budgeting, right? So um, when you silo a budget, right, you're, you're essentially somewhat risking the, the, the problem that because the healthcare system and all the sectors of the healthcare system are interdependent, uh, that you're essentially somebody might be trying to fix their own budgetary problems within their silo and then cause a serious problem in another silo. Uh, so, for example, uh, you can say, well, I need to save money, so I'm going to reduce uh, spending in long-term care. I'm going to reduce spending in hospice care. Um, and so I'm going to say we're going to fund hospice beds at 50%, but we're going to make the communities uh, fundraise locally the other 50% of their operating budgets. Seems like, you know, I'm... I don't think many people would, would find that that's a totally crazy idea. Except the problem is that then when you approve beds, uh, hospices simply can't operate them if they can't fundraise. So the beds don't open, the beds don't get created, and then all the patients go into acute care and you cannot turn down, you, you cannot turn off the tap on acute care because it, it's uh, it's not an elective uh, situation, right? So, so what ends up happening is that because you tried to save money on hospice beds, which were extremely cheap to begin with, you end up leading to dramatically higher costs in the acute care setting because all the patients have to go to acute care to get their, their end-of-life care. And you end up spending far more money than you would have had you simply funded hospice care properly in the first place. So, so this is really the issue of siloing of budgets. And I mean, I, we can call it culture if we want, but, but really what it amounts to is the idea that if we're, we're not tracking per day costs for patients, we're not, we're not doing a patient-based budget um, or even a regional-based budget, we're, do, we're still funding programs. And every time we put a program of funding and, and then programs have to balance their budgets, every program can balance their own budget um, simply by choosing to cut their own costs. And, and the costs accrued in other sectors of the budget will never appear on their ledger. But I mean, just to be really clear, I mean, there are clear examples of this. For example, in, in Eastern Ottawa, we've had approved hospice beds for, for many, many years uh, for an underserved area. But because already the fundraising um, machinery of, the, of, of the, the hospice providers is already tapped out, they're just not in a position to be able to open those beds um, because we can't find, uh, you know, a place to house them where we'd be able to balance the budget without, you know, very substantial fundraising simply for operating costs. So, so it's a challenge, right? And, and uh, I'm sure this is the story repeating itself across the province. I guess what we're trying to say is we, we need to rethink the way that we fund healthcare and break down some of these silos between program operating and think about a different way to fund it, as James mentioned, perhaps at the patient level and the costs that and the services that they need. What about that timely transition to a palliative approach? You've expressed concern that we just simply don't have that built into the system. Well, what does that approach look like and how do we define a timely transition? Yeah, that's a very challenging problem because there are very various um, key players involved in that. Let's uh, let's use that term. So, you have patients who uh, don't understand necessarily, or their caregivers don't understand what the nature and intent of palliative care is, is, and there might be some stigma associated with it that it's only for the people at the very, very end of life. You have providers who hold many of the same opinions about what palliative care, you know, is. So. These, these types of barriers lead people to receive palliative care later and later towards the end of life. Um, and we don't have reliable tools to be able to 
signal people and, and providers that maybe it's time to think about a shift in your approach to care. Now, I'll turn it over to James here because he's working on some really exciting stuff um, that I think hopefully will be uh, one important solution to get at that. And, and James, maybe you want to talk about that. We always talk about the importance of early uh, adoption of a palliative approach as someone is nearing the end of life. You know, 95% of Canadians die of a very, you know, of a chronic, incurable condition that was probably quite predictable. Um, and yet, uh, still only a minority really have any involvement of palliative care specialists in their, in their care uh, prior to death. And of those who do get palliative uh, involvement, uh, the large majority are, are patients with cancer. So we do a pretty good job of getting involved in patients dying of cancer in, in, uh, in Canada. Uh, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of two thirds to, to 80% or more will get some degree of palliative involvement prior to death. It usually happens, you know, starts a couple of months before they die and, and, uh, proceeds fairly frequently from then on. So that, that we're doing fairly well in that area. But when it comes to non-cancer illnesses, which is about 75% of the population, we, we see an entirely different story. So really uh, only a tiny minority are getting palliative care services or palliative care involved. They're getting involved for the first time days or weeks before they die, if they get involved at all, and they're getting it less frequently. So, so really we need to have a much better approach to getting palliative care involved in a timely manner for these patients. Now, the, the problem is that our system also heavily depends on providers to recognize and, and do this in a proactive way. Um, and frankly, being proactive is something that most humans are just not that good at, right? We, we are very reactive. We respond to crises. We're really good at it. Um, but certainly in healthcare, when you have 100 things going on, you've got a busy clinic day, um, these sort of important but non-urgent issues tend to get left to the wayside until, um, until a, an event sort of prompts you to do it. So what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to um, change things up a little bit where we use uh, more reliable tools. So tools that are not depending on humans to remember to do something and trigger the process, but actually have little nudges built into the system. So um, uh, it, it is actually very easy using uh, data that is already in our electronic health records to identify patterns that, put, that identify people at being high risk of, of dying in the next year, for example. Um, you know, it, it's not, a, it doesn't tell you what day you're going to die on. It doesn't tell you precisely who's going to die and who's going to live with 100% accuracy, but it's pretty good at flagging the people who are at high risk. And the pe these people happen to also have very, very high symptom burdens, and they generally want to talk about goals of care about 80, 90% of the time, according to our studies. And so uh, if you flag those people, get a team to go in and just assess their needs, talk about what they want to talk about. Um, you'll find, you know, nine times out of 10 that you're, you're able, you're able to identify a need that needs to be met and you can start, you know, talk about changing uh, the type of care that you're providing. So these automated mechanisms, and we're starting to build them and starting to test them and use them in different settings, including home care, uh, long-term care and acute care, uh, and then hopefully eventually primary care and in other settings, just using data that's already in the system. So it's no additional workflow for anybody. Uh, it can be a really good way to start upstream. You know, the way that you improve, it, you know, the way that you do quality improvement in any aspect of healthcare, step one is just simply identifying the people you want to focus on. And if you don't have a reliable means of doing that, you're not going to go very far. But we're, we're really starting to crack that nut and um, we're getting some exciting uh, data out of, out of that work. It sounds like when you talk about these types of tools, leveraging the data that exists, this is big data. This sounds like artificial intelligence and machine learning systems helping prompt the hospital staff to recognize when it's time to start talking to a particular patient about that next step. 
Yes, I, I think we, uh, I don't want to get too geeky about the terms we use, but this this isn't a purely intelligent uh, system. We're not asking Hal to tell us, you know, uh, to open the pod bay doors. Um, where this is really just, this is an what we call augmented intelligence. So it's essentially prompting humans to do what they already know how to do. So for example, uh, the, a better analogy would be something like when you back up your car and you get the alert sensor when you're near an object or the lane change warning when there's a car in your blind spot. It, it tells you when there's a potentially a high risk area. And, and what's helpful about this is that we know humans are very good. There, there are certain situations where we perform very well. And then there's, area, there's certain types of tasks and situations where humans don't do as well. And they're very predictable. So that's why we've developed things like these these lane changer warnings to flag us and alert us to potential risks where humans are known to make mistakes and 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 then hopefully you know help us avoid those errors and that's exactly what this does it's not the, com the computer's not taking it over augmented care is really a good way to think about it but what i really like about these approaches is we're, we're starting to draw on you know the fields of behavioral economics with nudge theory and uh, humans have predictable ways of behaving. And that's what, you know, the foundation of a lot of behavioral economics is. And so these types of tools are taking advantage of the predictable behavior and biases of humans and understanding that sometimes we need a little nudge to help us out and improve the care that we provide. And that's okay. One of the other issues that you address involves the barriers to home and community care resources. What are those barriers? Innumerable. Um, I mean, I think, again, it comes back to the initial problems we talked about. Firstly and foremost, that we don't have enough beds uh, to, to provide care to people in. Uh, the budgets is a big problem, but it's not just simply a matter of throwing more money at the problem and we expect it to go away. Caregivers are a foundational aspect of care for people with terminal illnesses. And Thankfully, I think we're starting to shine the light on their importance, but we're still not doing a good enough job um, at the healthcare system to support our caregivers. An enormous amount of costs are downloaded to families, and we, we hope that they're just going to find a way to, to make it work for them. And that's not the case for most people. So I think we really need to do a lot of work, both at the policy level in the form of um, you know tax incentives or other subsidies to support caregiving at home, uh, in addition to some of the addressing some of the other problems we've already talked about, beds and budgets. Yeah, I, th I think that's really, really an important thing to recognize here, right? Is that when you achieve a death at home, what you're essentially saying to the world is we found an unpaid caregiver to leverage. Um, and, and, you know, when we talk about incremental funding to home care, right? It's great if we can add, you know, X number of hours, and, you know, to, to um, the support that we can give somebody. But, you know, increasing them from six hours a day to nine hours a day to 12 hours a day is frankly not going to make the difference for the large majority of people who are not able to die at home currently. Um, because their situation is, for example, if they live alone or they don't have any caregivers who can stay with them, home care is rarely, if ever, able to provide anything close to 24-hour care. And as patients get near to the end of life, uh, that's that's just something that's that's uh, that's not going to be an option. Now that doesn't mean that increasing funding won't help uh, the sector because um, you know people's needs will actually change over time and get worse over time. So maybe upstream, like people may be able to stay at home longer before transitioning to another setting like a, like an inpatient palliative care center if they're not able to uh, uh, or facility, I should say, if they're not able to find any any sort of friend or family member to, to supplement the time that, that home care gives them. 
But but I mean, it's just really important to understand that the large majority of people who are currently in hospital waiting to go somewhere are not waiting uh, at the end of life, I should say, are not uh, waiting to for home care to get set up for them because home care is not even an option. Not to continue to geek out on you or anything, but let's come back to the data part of this conversation, because if one of your solutions to increasing palliative care and reducing acute care is identifying and tracking relevant metrics for that appropriate end of life care, it sounds like one of the biggest problems we have with understanding the end of life care issues in Canada is a lack of actual hard data on what's going on at this stage. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Michael. I mean, we we do have access in Ontario, especially to uh, this idea that there's routinely collected data on people, and we we we're able to link uh, multiple databases so that we can help understand who these people are a little bit better. But we still live in a world where data is um, expensive, uh, very difficult to access, and still inadequate to be able to study. Uh, the variations in care quality between regions to help us understand where where the gaps are and how to improve them. It, on on top of that, um, you know some some folks have called these the idea of data jails, where there's so much um, regulation and red tape to get through. Some of it very appropriate because it's personal health information, but us as researchers get caught in these cycles where you you can't actually get the research done what, that you're trying to do because of, you know, uh, these extended sort of uh, barriers and, and red tape that gets in your way. And ultimately, uh, it leads to delays uh, and, and, and expense in trying to conduct this kind of research. So I, I do think there's a lot of work that needs to be done provincially, and perhaps even more importantly, nationally, so that we can get a, a picture of Canadians and their end of life care, which currently we have a very challenging time doing. So then let me ask the awkward and uncomfortable question that ties end of life with money. Aside from the quality of life improvement, what kind of cost savings are we looking at by moving people out of hospitals into their homes for those final three months of their life? Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, we've done our very best in this paper to give something in the way of estimates uh, of what can be done. I mean, there's uh, the fundamental, like the, the largest, you know, probable single cost that we're talking about here relates to patients who are in the final months of their life, and I mean in the final 90 days of their life, who are waiting in, in an acute care bed to go somewhere else, um, uh, but they can't go because that bed is not available, there is no bed available, or, or for whatever reason, um, they just can't go at the moment, but it's related to the fact that their care in their current acute care bed is finished. They want to go. Everybody wants them to go. A facility would love to accept them, but there isn't a bit. So if you just look at those people, right, uh, in the final 90, day, final 90 days of life, that accounts for an astounding amount, an astounding proportion of, of all of the bed days spent in hospital across Canada. Um, if uh, we had some fairly uh, specific and precise data from Ontario, uh, that suggested that if you took the people, and again, this is just people in the final final 90 days of their life, not everybody who's waiting to go somewhere else, but you move them to the bed they were waiting to go to and just change the cost of their care per day to that cost, uh, you would save across Canada in the $400 million range a year um, just for people in the final 90 days of life. So that's a probably a very conservative estimate because it only refers to people who have actually been flagged as waiting to go there. In many cases, people are in these beds. They don't even get flagged because 
the facility already knows that there's no bed available. They won't even start that process and they're just going to keep them in acute care until the end. It, um, there are probably also a fair number of people who have more than 90 days left who are also in that boat but wouldn't get captured by this data. So conservatively, many hundreds of millions. Um, you know, simple automated mechanisms to flag medications that people are taking. They may have taken them for years, but they don't have any benefit in people nearing the end of life. Um, those would be another great example. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at, this is not a small amount of money. This is not a trivial sum of money. It's a substantial sum of money. And considering that, you know, when, when you talk about cost effectiveness, you should talk about, okay, um, money that I have to invest to get some benefit or higher quality of care. We can't do that type of calculation for this because in fact, if you make these changes, you get money and you get a better amount of uh, higher quality of care. So this doesn't even fit into normal sort of economics. What, what's obviously missing is uh, you'd need a small upfront investment uh, in, in actually generating some of the capital, like generating some of the facilities uh, where these people would be cared for um, and, and actually building capacity. But in many cases, that capacity actually exists in, in assisted living facilities, et cetera. It's sort of untapped. So, um, so it's definitely there. And again, you're, you know, as we build back uh, following the pandemic and their infrastructure investments, people are already saying we need to be looking at uh, expanding substantially our long-term care sector across the board. Um, these are the kinds of, of things that need to be recognized, right? That we need to make small structural changes and really recognize how much um, uh, of a cost can be saved simply by creating capacity for patients who are currently in hospital who want to be somewhere else and should be somewhere else. And I think just to pick up on what James said around building back, right? We've seen immense suffering um, and we've, we've, we've uncovered some of the terrible uh, disparities in care that uh, throughout the pandemic, you know, both in the long-term care sector, but also in home care. And now I believe, and I think many believe, is our opportunity to really try and finally do something about this. Um, we have a we have an interest and a need um, and, a, and a spotlight on these uh, areas of care. And I think it behooves us to try to take this opportunity to really, truly improve care for folks at the end of life, especially those who are stuck waiting in hospitals simply for a bed for them to receive their end of life care outside of the hospital. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and insight today. Thank you, Michael. Michael, thank you for having us. It's been uh, my pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. Dr. Kieran Quinn is a clinician scientist at Sinai Health System and an assistant professor at the Temerity Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. And Dr. James Downer is the head of palliative care in the Department of Medicine at the University of Ottawa. The report titled Canada's Sky-High Costs for End-of-Life Care Need Solutions can be found at cdhow.org. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, December 3rd, the energy transition in Canada. Can electricity do the heavy lifting? We'll look for answers to that question and more from Michael Bernstein, the CEO of Clean Prosperity, Philip Duguay, the Managing Director of Canada Grid, the Transition Accelerator, and Blake Schaefer, the Assistant Professor of the Department of Economics and Public Policy at the University of Calgary. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. 
The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.